0: Hey, church, thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is Frontier Church's podcast where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. And today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. And the reason why it's going to be a little bit different is because I didn't preach the sermon that we had planned last Sunday my bad i went a different direction so as a result that's left the sermon series that we concluded last sunday that's left the sermon series unfinished so in this podcast what i'm going to do is i'm going to teach a little bit about our fifth and final spiritual practice the seasons the seasons and the practice of the seasons is of all of our practices the most surprising spiritual practice at Frontier Church. It's the practice that is the newest to me. So we can't just skip over this practice and take it for granted. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to dig deep and we're going to take a deep dive over the next 30, 40 minutes together. I love you and I hope this podcast helps you worship local. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the fifth spiritual practice at Frontier Church for the next half an hour, the seasons, right? Our other four are scripture, solitude, Sabbath, self-denial, and that leaves us with the final of the five, the seasons. So, I'll start with a, a clear definition of what we mean when, when we use the word seasons, what it means that one of the seasons is a spiritual discipline at Frontier Church. So, for those of you who love clarity, um, for those of you who have a, a pen and a notebook, here it is, bro. The seasons— is the practice of allowing the liturgical calendar to shape your walk with Jesus. Primarily by engaging in three different seasons throughout the year, Advent, Lent, and and Pentecost. And so my, my, my goal in this in this podcast is to present the liturgical calendar uh, specifically Advent Lent and Pentecost. My my goal during this episode is to present the liturgical calendar to you as a formational adventure through the life, death, resurrection and ascension of King Jesus, okay? It's a it's a formational adventure not not just a cold dead lifeless ritualistic well this is what the church you know has been doing for the last you know couple thousand years i want us to see it primarily as a formational adventure and to get there is going to take all types of work i think that raises all sorts of questions these are the common questions that we get like how do the liturgical seasons practically shape and help our walk with jesus or to phrase the question just a little bit differently, how are liturgical seasons like Advent, Lent, and Pentecost not just cold, lifeless, ritualistic traditions, but actually exciting personal adventures with the Lord Jesus Christ? These are, these are big questions. Big questions. I love those questions. But we're not ready for the questions just yet. First, before we dive into these questions, let me just talk about your life. There's this horrifying but profound scene from Charles Dickens' classic novels, Great Expectations. And uh, in, in Great Expectations, there's this heartbreaking but deeply symbolic moment that I think can really start our conversation about the place of the seasons, um, especially in regard to our discipleship with Jesus. And in Great Expectations, it's, it's the morning of the wedding day for one of the main characters in the novel, right? She's supposed to be the best day of her life. She's, she's looking forward to marrying the man of her dreams, Prince Charming, looking forward to her big, beautiful day in her beautiful wedding dress. And then at 8.40 a.m., she receives a letter. And this letter informs her that the groom is not coming to the wedding. Okay, so this is heartbreaking. It's wedding day. She receives a letter at 8.40 a.m., that her future husband is not coming to the wedding. This is heartbreaking. How does does she respond? This is where things get so heartbreaking and and interesting. Um, This woman, in great expectations, she responds by stopping all the clocks in her house. She stops all of the clocks at her house exactly at the time when the letter arrives. She stops all the clocks at her house at exactly 8.40 a.m. She stops the clocks... Because she wants to freeze this moment and live in it forever because that requires less bravery for her than the bravery that's required for her to to honestly, guys, to honestly walk out into this brave new world without a wedding and, and without a husband. So she stops the clocks to live in this moment forever. And not only does she stop all the clocks in her house, but she tries to freeze all of the circumstances of her life at exactly 8.40 a.m., even down to the smallest details. She, for instance, gosh, this is heartbreaking. For instance, she only had one shoe on when she received the letter at 8.40 a.m. So she refuses to put on the other shoe. Not only does she stop all the clocks in her house, But she refuses to put away the wedding cake that's on the table. She refuses to even take off her wedding dress. And so she spends the rest of her life in a wedding dress that eventually yellows. And she lets the wedding cake on the table mold because she refuses to put it away. Stops the clocks at 8.40 a.m. And to me, this is a picture of modern life. In modern life, what we've done, it seems to me, is we've stopped all of the clocks. We view time entirely as secular. Time only exists to tell us when to go to work and when we're off work, right? Time no longer feels like it exists to teach about God and our covenant with God and the story of God. Time exists to tell me when I need to wake up and when I need to take my medication, and when my favorite TV show is on. And and since we view time as secular, we experience time as secular. It feels flat. Every day feels the same. Every season feels the same besides the temperature rising and dropping. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then thank God the weekend, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and thank God... Then the weekend, as modern scholars phrase it in a way that I think is really helpful, modern life has become disenchanted. Ah, Isn't that that such a good word? Disenchanted. It's been robbed of all of its crushing lows and soaring highs. All of its complexities and all of its seasons of deep penitence and seasons of embarrassingly exuberant joy. And and these highs and lows throughout the year are the things that really give life texture. And so modern life feels like it has no texture. It's just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You get the point, right? It's not an adventure that as it unfolds, tells a story it's just a rote script that we stick to and this is this is not how the people of god have historically viewed time this is a relatively new phenomenon biblically time exists to teach us about the reality of God and the story of God. And and that means that historically there's been something called a liturgical calendar that in order to teach us about the reality of God and the story of God has take has, has it kind of, it's it's it takes us through these crushing lows and soaring highs of life with God and not only does it teach us t- Not only does it teach us about God, but time exists in order to invite us to participate in the story of God, right? A way of thinking about it is that the sun spins around the earth by the sovereignty of God, not just to sustain human existence, but to walk us through the highs and lows of the story of God through cold seasons and through hot seasons and that's why the church has developed a liturgical calendar what a what a liturgical calendar does is it makes sure that we tell time in reference to the story of god and makes sure that when we tell time We we do so by making God the main reference point of time, not just like our our nine to five jobs. And that when we see life, when we see life this way and when we see time this way, no longer as flat, but as a rich invitation that points us into the story of God, then all of a sudden our wedding dress doesn't yellow. (laughs) Right? Our our cakes don't mold our lives are no longer flat and boring like the modern world wants our lives to be. So what I want to do well actually so before I get practical let me just read a quote from one of my favorite theologians. Let me see if I can find it here. Give me give me one second. Um here's a quote from NT Wright. He says The one thing that we can be sure of is that inhabitants in first century Palestine with Jesus did not think of space, time, and matter in quite the way that we do. And if we're going to understand Jesus, it's vital to grasp the difference between his world and ours. In particular, in my own generation, we have watched the erosion of special time. When I was growing up, Sunday was certainly special, and other days like Good Friday were special too, but now, virtually all days are alike. People work from Monday to Friday, but still, many people are finding their working week reaching its climax on Saturday and Sunday, and this is true for seasons and years. Few people, even Christians, know when it's Advent or Lent, and even those who do, really don't do much about them. And so, he he goes on to say, if we're going to come to the Bible and the stories about Jesus with this modern view of time, we'll never understand what Jesus was all about. So, we need to take a deep breath and explore the way in which people in Jesus' world would have thought about the vital element of time differently. I think that's uh, just a... I think his observation is, is totally true. I think that... The modern world has disenchanted our relationship with time so that we no longer relate to time the same way that Jesus relates to time. Um, and so, now that we've got that out of the way, now we can get a little bit more practical. I wanted to, I wanted to take us through some that big idea first um, and give us kind of a big theology of time so that we could see how how deeply the practice of seasons and the seasons is woven into our life. And, and as we get practical here, this means that I'm going to make a case for following the liturgical calendar in your life, right? I'm, I'm going to encourage you to to do this. I'm, I'm going to make this case because I'm your pastor, not because I want you to feel guilty. You should, you should know, just know this. You have complete and total freedom to not integrate the seasons into your life. And, uh, To not do that in a way that's free from guilt. So, as I make the case for the liturgical calendar, keep in mind that you might draw different conclusions than me, and that's totally cool, but I want a pastor. So, let's circle around to our initial questions. Um, If you remember, the initial questions we wrestled with at the beginning of this podcast were, how do the liturgical seasons practically shape and help our walk with Jesus? Or, to phrase the question a little bit differently, how are the liturgical seasons like Advent, Lent, and Pentecost— not just cold lifeless ritualistic traditions but actually exciting personal adventures with the lord jesus christ great question i've got three answers to it here's the first the seasons shape us as characters in the story of god a lot of times when we read the bible we we see it as nothing more than information that we need to memorize or Bible verses that we need to memorize or raw bits of data that are true that we need to assent to intellectually and affirm. And of course, there's um, what you do with your mind is deeply important, and, and the Bible is truth, right? But it's, it's also a story. And when you participate in the liturgical calendar, the liturgical calendar is structured so that as you go throughout the year, you experience it as the story of God. We didn't we didn't start this way. So um, when we planted Frontier Church, we didn't practice the liturgical calendar at at all. It it was really kind of by accident that we came around to it. Um, I think our first or second year I I remember like I was so busy planting frontier church um and surviving week by week that it like it it took I think the uh I can't remember if this right I think Judy Maxwell uh, like the week before Easter was like hey did you know that it's it's going to be Easter I was like oh my gosh like I almost just forgot about that by surviving week to week and uh so you know the first Easter we celebrated and I think Judy brought a flower cuz I totally forgot about everything else and just preached a sermon on on um on on the resurrection but I think that following year we decided to practice advent as a church and the amount of positive feedback that we got from practicing Advent was like overwhelming. The The biggest piece that we heard from practicing Advent that first year was that it was particularly helpful um, to families. And um, we were still kind of reeling as a, as a young church at having so many young families. We thought when we planted that the only people who were stupid enough to join church plants were young singles. <laughs> that's like, that's like what all the the literature says about church planting and so we were prepared for young singles and um we didn't have like barely any young singles show up at frontier church we had young families who had a high value for gospel centrality and and um and reformed theology and so we were reeling about how to do a better job serving um young families and it turns out that the liturgical calendar um, and, you know, we, over the course of the last couple of years, we've developed our own liturgical calendar borrowed from history of Advent, Lent, and Pentecost. It turns out that as helpful as those things are for adult followers of Jesus, they're probably doubly helpful for, for children. Because um, when Christianity is, well, let me say it this way. When Christianity is perceived as nothing more then intellectual data, it actually alienates children for from experiencing the story of Christianity. Cause there's only so much they can experience um, with uh with the intellectual development of a child, right? But I've noticed that seasons like Advent, Lent, and Pentecost speak particularly powerfully. To children, because they respond really, really well to physical and visceral symbols of the Christian faith. Like one example of this would be we're we're in the season of Lent right now, and um, it was so powerful for me as as not just a pastor but as a father to take the ashes and to make the sign of a cross on Russell and Della's forehead. That was the most powerful moment of our Ash Wednesday service for me by a long shot. You know, as I put that Ash cross on their forehead, I said, Russell, this is a reminder, buddy, that even though you're naughty, Jesus loves you. And um, my, my kid, like that just speaks to my kids. That Ash cross on their forehead that night spoke to them in a way that sometimes my preaching doesn't. Like, Later, later that night, it was, uh, 8 PM and Chloe and I put the kids down and to put the kids down, we had to, you know, wash the cross off their forehead and they weren't particularly happy with that because Chloe and I kept ours for the night. And, um, later that night at 10 PM or 9 30 PM. So like it's been an hour and a half and, or two hours and Della was supposed to be asleep already and she wasn't. And at like 10 PM, Della calls me up, right? Dad. And, uh. I reluctantly walk up the stairs and walk into the kid's bedroom and go over to Della's bed and Russell's asleep. I'm like, what's up, sweetheart? What's going on? You're supposed to be asleep. And she says, Dad, (laughs) she says, I can't remember Jesus without the cross on my forehead. (laughs) Uh, uh, Now, she's probably trying to manipulate me into putting a cross back on her forehead. But nevertheless, like what a cool moment that speaks to how powerful um, moments like that in the liturgical calendar can reach the heart of a child in a way that intellectual data just just can't. Um, And so that's been really cool to see in the way that it shapes us into the into the story of God, right? I mean, so you look at our three seasons, um, Advent, Lent, and and Pentecost, and and they really are shaped so that year after year, you become a a character in, in the story of God. For instance, in Advent, we learn to long for the first and second comings of Jesus, and that leads us all the way up to his birth on Christmas, And then Lent comes around. And in Lent, we learn to suffer with Jesus in the wilderness and and on the cross. And the Lent season leads us all the way to his resurrection in Easter. And then by the time Pentecost comes around, we find ourselves huddled together with the historical church, in order to ask the enthroned and ascended and resurrected Jesus to send his Holy Spirit out upon us. We, year after year, we become characters, and I would even say participants in the story of God. And and that's why um, the liturgical calendar has been so powerful throughout Christian history. Now, there's definitely been a little bit of a debate um, in various traditions and denominations, a little bit of a debate at, uh, at what events belong in the liturgical calendar. For instance, when you look at the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament liturgical calendar was filled to the brim with special events that spoke of the great works that God had done in their lives, right? They, they celebrated things like the Feast of Tabernacles or, or the Passover and, and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and by the time you, you get to the early church, Um, And specifically, the early church um, underneath Constantine, you know, um, formulates itself into Roman Catholicism, right? It it, it changes. By the time we get to medieval Catholicism, um, it's not just a handful of liturgical seasons, right? There's, There's all of these... Saints' days and um, and festivals and everything like that, and maybe those things are are helpful. I'm a Protestant, so I don't practice those things. Um, as long as there's not worship of of saints involved in those, it's like whatever you know, whatever you gotta do to remember the story of God. But um, but by the time the Reformation comes around, we have to realize is that the Reformation wasn't just a Reformation of the gospel. Certainly, it was right a Reformation of bringing people back to. Um, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in in Christ alone. But it was also a reformation of, of liturgy. What Calvin did was... He looked at what he felt like was a bloated liturgical calendar that was filled with too many saints' days and saints' festivals, and he stripped it down to what he thought were the the minimal helpful components. That's where we get our liturgical calendar from. We practice the Reformed liturgical calendar that involves just the three things, and this was Calvin's work as a pastor in Geneva, was seeing the liturgical calendar as Advent, Lent, and, and Pentecost. Now, interestingly enough, as um, Christian history moves forward um, and comes to the West, uh, the Puritans didn't even like those three traditions, right? The the Puritans, and we definitely have Puritan roots as a Western Reformed church, um, the Puritans, what they did was they, they took um, the Reformed liturgical calendar and basically threw even that out the window. And and part of this was their big argument was and I want to I want to honor their argument. Their big argument was that if we drew attention to anything outside of the Lord's Day, right? Sabbath every Sunday, if we drew attention to to any other events or holidays, we would we would end up not taking sunday as seriously that was their there was their argument that advent and and lent and easter and pentecost by practicing these things we we gave less gravitas and weight um, to the Lord's day on, on Sunday. And I, you know, whatever, uh, I disagree with that. I think that you can practice those things and still have a huge and high vision for, for Sunday mornings. But that's, that's why most modern churches are just kind of, they reject the liturgical calendar and there's, it's, it's whatever, you know, really it like it is. Um, Nowhere in the 66 books of the Bible are we commanded to practice the liturgical calendar. I think it's a matter of wisdom and, and, and helpfulness. But one danger in not practicing the liturgical calendar as a church is that sometimes if you don't practice the liturgical calendar, um, the pulpit of your church gets characterized by whatever the pastor's hobby horses are, right? Because then it's just a matter of sermon series. And... um a pastor can choose whatever sermon series he wants and neglect whatever ones he's he wants, and as a result of that, sometimes you can focus so much on the pastor's hobby horses and pet topics that you never hear much about um, the resurrection of Jesus, or you never hear you never experience deep moments of penitence and repentance um, because the church just focuses on another sermon series on leadership, right? And so I think. The cool thing about the liturgical calendar is that it, it's a helpful, preventative measure put in place so that we don't just sit underneath the pulpit of whatever coal feels like preaching, right? We're going to preach on repentance deeply during the Lent season. We're going to preach on the birth of Jesus and waiting for that— in the Advent season. Um, we're going to preach on the resurrection of Jesus. You, you get the point, right? I think this is helpful. And so that's the first way. Boy, I, that went way longer than I had, I had hoped. Um, but that's the first point. I'll see if I can go quicker in, in these next two. The first way that it shapes us is that it shapes us as characters in the story of God. Here's the second way that it shapes us. It shapes us by providing us with the worldview of the scriptures, So you have to realize that the liturgical calendar came from a theological belief that's in in the Bible. It's not something that the Israelites just dreamed up in the Old Testament. It's, hey, life is kind of boring. What if we had some holidays, right? It it was motivated by a biblical view of the seasons, the calendar, and and time. It's rooted particularly in the theological view of the Bible that teaches that, quote— The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So when we look out at nature, we're supposed to see things, objects that teach us about the life of God and the nature of God. Um, This is why John Calvin referred to creation as God's clothing, (laughs) I love that image, right? It's God's clothing. It is not God. Don't make that mistake. But what creation does is it makes the invisible God, it makes his attributes visible to us. So when when a storm happens, we can look at that and be like, whoa, like God is powerful. Or when the seasons change, we have to realize that they're changing in order to teach us about God. This is why Martin Luther Said that spring exists to teach us that the resurrection is true. (laughs) Isn't that that great? Right? Spring exists to teach us that the resurrection is, is true. After a cold, lifeless winter where everything dies and our hope goes out the window, all of a sudden, through that last layer of snow in springtime, as the sun starts to melt, the snow. There's, there's a flower that pierces victoriously, pierces that layer of snow, and we should look at that and think, that's right, the resurrection is, is true, right? The, all of creation is an illustration of what relationship with God is, is like. This is why Calvin also referred to nature as, quote, the dazzling theater of the glory of God. When we look at trees, and we see their branches and leaves stretching upward to heaven, we should think, right, that's how I'm supposed to live my life. By looking up to God and by stretching my hands out in prayer and by worshiping Him and by participating in Advent, Lent, and Pentecost, we sync our lives up with the life of nature and we remember that we remember that the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, and I think that's that's pretty awesome. So that's the second way that it shapes us. It shapes us by giving us the worldview of the scriptures so that we look out at nature and we look at our calendars and we think, that's right, these things declare the glory of God. Here's the third and final way that uh, the seasons shape us. The seasons shape us into disciples of Jesus. I want to be super practical about this. And, um super forward um, about this, because one of our goals as a church that practiced the spiritual disciplines is that we would do the things that Jesus did. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means that we do the things that Jesus did. That begs the question, did Jesus practice the liturgical calendar? Well, you bet your butt he did, right? I mean, like, The cool thing about reading the life of Jesus in the Gospels is that not only was he present in the various festivals, and not only did he go to those parties and party hard with with Israel, he did, but beyond that, what Jesus does is he schedules the most important redemptive work that he did around the liturgical calendar. It's almost like in the heavenly realm, Jesus circled some of the most important dates on the calendar and said, this is when I'm going to do X and this is when I'm going to do Y. Let me let me tell you what I'm, I'm talking about here. There's the famous line from Jesus where Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me. Now, what you have to realize is that as beautiful as those words are, they become doubly beautiful when you when you understand them in the backdrop of what season it is and and the writer of the gospels is clear about what seasons what season that takes place in when jesus says whoever is thirsty let him come to me uh the writer of scripture records that that happens during the feast of tabernacles right what the feast of tabernacles is is it's a celebration um of 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 the building of the tabernacle um, but specifically when God gives them water out in the wilderness. And so every year during the Feast of Tabernacles, um, the season would culminate into this huge moment of worship where where uh, basically a a priest would stand in front of the people of God with a big old pitcher of water, and everybody would chant and cheer, and he would pour that pitcher of water out, and people would remember that God gave them water. It was this epic moment. And when Jesus says, whoever's thirsty, first he let him come to me he says that during the feast of tabernacles right so he's he's do he's saying this as the water's coming out of the pitcher reminding people that this season points them to Jesus it's 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 awesome right or the the obvious one to look at is that Jesus Painstakingly schedules his death to take place on a certain day. He always talks about how this is not the appointed time. It's not the appointed time. This is not the fulfillment of time. Why does he always say that? Well, he says that because he wants us to understand the symbolism of his death rightly. And so he schedules his death to take place on the Passover. And so when Jesus is on the cross, bleeding for the sins of humanity, He schedules it to happen at the same time that families would be slitting the throats of the Passover lamb and remembering how God covered their sin in the blood. You see, do you see the deal here? Or even after Jesus is resurrected and he ascends to the heavenly realm and is seated at the right hand of God, Jesus waits to send the Holy Spirit until Pentecost comes around. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, it's just really cool to understand that it's not there's not one iota of Jesus' life that's random. He frames it around the liturgical calendar, which means that if we're going to do what Jesus did, then there has to be some sense in which there, we have to em- embrace, I think, the liturgical calendar or at least a different relationship with time where we see time as something that primarily teaches us about God and we want to help you do that at Frontier Church. The the awesome thing is that at Frontier Church we keep it really minimal, right? We're we're just doing we're just doing Advent, Lent and Pentecost. You don't have to fill your life with a, a million confusing different holidays and holy days and everything like that. Just stick with us as a local church. And when our liturgical seasons come around, we just ask that you be open to it. We're going to shepherd you. We're going to lead you. We're going to resource you, right? During the season of Lent, we've got our whole spiritual plan that comes out and all of our church is fasting from different things on different weeks. All that we ask is that you approach those things with an open-minded willingness to just try, right? Just try to jump in and maybe God will even... Shock you and surprise you by helping you experience him freshly. Come with your questions, ask your questions, talk about it in your community groups, talk about it in your fighter groups, but just be open, open minded, um, open minded to it. And um, I think it's good to be open minded um, because I don't want you to be like Charles Dickens' character and great expectations. Sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes it feels like modern life has stopped all of the clocks. At 8.40 a.m., she stops the clocks. The cake is molding. The dress is yellowing. Every day feels the same. Every season feels the same. Every week feels the same. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, blah, 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 blah. The dress yellows, the cake molds, and life becomes disenchanted. This is what happens, I think, when we make life flat, dull, boring and refuse the highs and lows of embracing time theologically my challenge to you is i challenge you to join the historical church in the adventure of moving through the yearly calendar in a way that invites you to participate in the story of jesus in advent every year what are we doing we're learning to long for the first and second coming of jesus and we long for those comings of jesus all the way up until we celebrate his birth on christmas and then in lent what are we doing in lent we learn to suffer with jesus not as a theoretical abstract thing to study but we suffer with jesus during the wilderness and on the cross by practicing self-denial and fasting, and this leads us all the way to his victorious resurrection and Easter. And then what are we doing in Pentecost? In Pentecost, what we do is we huddle together with the historical church, and we ask the enthroned and ascended Jesus to send his Holy Spirit out upon us. We do this year after year after year after year, and what happens is that we stop seeing the story of God as something that happened a couple thousand years ago in a faraway place, and we start seeing the story of God as something that we are a character inside of. And so the liturgical calendar, particularly the practice of the seasons, is not a cold, lifeless ritual. It's a formational adventure that takes you through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. And I'm just excited to be able to do this with you guys. So I hope this podcast was helpful. I was supposed to preach a sermon like this on Sunday. Um, So hopefully you you found these 40 minutes enriching and inspiring as you look to become an anti-fragile Jesus person. Love you guys, and I'll see you on Sunday.